ketamine just doesn't treat the biological portion. Like you can't put ketamine into a pill and expect results. And it's a big part of medicine that I think is missing. The real treatment of a person involves the mind, body, and spirit. And we are missing that in so many facets. Facts do not have opinions. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm here each week to dive deeper into how we can find happiness and health inside and out through self-love, body positivity, and discovering new ways to be our best selves. Before we get started, a reminder, this podcast is for general educational purposes and is not intended to diagnose, advise, or treat any physical or mental illness. And while Dr. Edwards is a medical doctor, he's not your doctor. And we always recommend that you see a licensed health professional accordingly. Additionally, I would like to give a warning to listeners this week. We will be talking about depression, suicidality, and other mental health conditions for which ketamine may be a medical solution. If these topics are triggering or inappropriate for little ears, please protect yourself and them accordingly. So Dr. Jonathan Edwards is joining us for what might be a controversial subject, but after reading his new book, The Revolutionary Ketamine, the safe drug that effectively treats depression and prevents suicide. I'm actually really excited to share a lot of the science and the research around this, as you say, safe drug to listeners, because I can personally think of several people in my life who either would have or could benefit. So I want to share a little bit about you, doctor, before hopefully you can share more about yourself. But you have been a medical doctor specializing in human health and optimization for a while, and your clients are a range of everyday people, CEOs, professional athletes. And fun fact, your medical school was actually here in Virginia, where I live. And you have a BS in physiology and then went on to universities in Reno for internal medicine and Utah for physical medicine and rehabilitation, where... He then went on to be a research fellow in neurology in France, and lastly, anesthesiology at the University of South Florida. So I can see all the different touch points that you talk about in your book and how this all comes together. Welcome to The Whole View, Doctor. Can I, can I call you John? Is that okay? Yeah, sure. John, Jonathan, anything's good, sure. Well, okay, yeah, welcome. I take, no, I, any, I, I respond to anything. <laughs> can you tell our listeners a little more about yourself and what brought you to research about ketamine in your book? Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm glad you That's I come from, I, I actually came from, from a young boy. I came from wanting to be a professional motocross racer and nobody in my family ever went to university. I was the first out of like 50 cousins to even go to university, let alone medical school. And that's important because I came from, meager, meager upbringings, so to speak. And I had a, I remember at seven years old, I just, I learned about what say, go right into it, suicide, how it can, it brings plenty of pain and drama. And it's like one life is lost, but it rolls the grenade into the whole family. And I was seven years old in the room, watching my aunts, my uncles, my mom, dad, and especially my grandma 
crying in ways I couldn't understand. My grandfather had, had killed himself by suicide and, and I was just trying to make sense of it all. And that's, I'd say that's where my journey into this truly started. Then, and then I went, finished my motocross career, uh, went straight with that, went straight into university. And a side note, it's strange that somebody could come from professional athletes into really high academics. It's the same determination and motivation. And I think that's a good message to send. If I can do it, anybody can. And I love saying that. So anyway, and then in medical school, I had a professor also commit suicide. And I remember there's no drug to treat it back then, like, or at least to stop it or abate it. All we could do is sedate the heck out of you and put you in a, a Baker Act you, and then put you in an institution. And so it's always been an intriguing subject for me. And then, as you said, I'm a, I do a lot of health optimization and I, I did anesthesia. I've practiced anesthesiology for many years, which is my connection to ketamine because we use it in the hospital. And it's a very safe drug from that standpoint. But being privileged to work with notable figures, like you said, everybody, athletes, and that I've worked with Gavin DeBecker and uh, you can look him up. He's, he's been on many, been on Joe Rogan. He's been on Larry King, Oprah six times. And he has the book called The Gift of Fear. That's all over the world. And it's, that is a great book. So, so anyway, Gavin asked me one day, he says, what do you think about ketamine? And I was like, well, that's an odd question. I was like, sure. It's, it's just a drug I use all the time. But I said, it's also been recently repurposed and I have, I have interest in it because it can, uh, treat depression and stop suicidality. And he, and his answer to me was, I'm glad you answered the question that way, Jonathan. He goes, but I was, I can tell you this right now. I was prepared if you were going to answer the other way. And what I didn't know about Gavin at that time is he'd lost his mother to suicide at 16 in a very painful way. And he told me he's thinks about that day, even 50 years having passed. So he's a big proponent of it. And we both agreed that the world needs to know that ketamine can be a lifeline, not a panacea, but it can add to somebody who's suffering on their emotions and thoughts and they're at the edge of that river and being able to throw them a lifeline, ketamine can be that. And when combined with therapy, it, it can be staggeringly effective. And that's, but you still have, you know, the, the, the public thinks it's a horse tranquilizer or a party drug. And apparently there's still many medical professionals who don't see it that way. And, and, and anybody who deals with suicide, and I have now for the last five years in, in conjunction with the psychiatrist, Dr. Sam Zand, when we both kind of work together and uh, I've seen the worst of the worst and they need a lifeline, not all of them, but some of them do. And if you're that parent, especially the parent of a child who's just off the rails, you try anything you can. And that's where this all circles back. And that's the reason I put so much work into this book. That's it in a nutshell. No, that's a great place to leave it. And I would love if maybe we could start at the very basics for our listeners, because like myself, I've, I had heard of 
ketamine and I get ads all the time for psychedelics for Mm -hmm. my family has in our home actively today. We'll talk a little bit about our past, but actively today, I'm a foster parent. We're adopting someone with extreme PTSD, bipolar Mm -hmm. mood disorders. And then I also have neurodiversity from ASD to ADD and ADHD, both with depression and anxiety associated with them. So where I come from is I get ads based on my own research and things that I'm looking at for these things all the time. And every time I see them, I roll my eyes and I'm like, this is just people wanting an excuse to take psychedelics. But after reading your book, I learned a lot. Honestly, I read it in one sitting. So we'll talk about that a little bit. But (laughs) I, I think a lot of listeners think of ketamine as a recreational drug, perhaps because I'm a, a millennial. I remember a lot of my friends abusing it in college, talking about mm-hmm. K-hole or getting special K from a friend of their friend who worked at a vet's office or like, well, I don't mm-hmm. even understand some of these things that were happening. But you gave a much broader history and understanding of this FDA approved medicine yep. in your new book. Um, which is not something we can say for cocaine, for example, right? So, right, the, yeah. exactly. So, the revolutionary ketamine. Can you talk a little bit about the timeline that you went through in the book about ketamine's inventions and the uses that it has been used for in the medical community? You started in the '60s and then brought us forward to the 2000s. Um, yeah. Maybe like a high-level overview of just what that looked like, because I think most people probably think what I think, right, is, as you mentioned, horse tranquilizer and recreational drug. Yeah, the, so yeah, it was, ketamine was first discovered in the 60s based, uh, and it's a derivative of the drug PCP, angel dust, really, and cyclidine. And basically, scientists at that pharmaceutical company who was in, I think Park Davis was the one, they said, oh, the fencyclidine just causes too much delirium postoperatively. So we want, a, we want a better drug. So they, so that's how ketamine got discovered. And then they found, hey, it works great for anesthesia. So the timing of ketamine is important because that was the Vietnam era time. And ketamine is unique in that it doesn't decrease your respirations or and it actually supports your blood pressure and heart rate when given, and but produces sedation and basically dissociation. And we can talk about that more. Is it a psychedelic or is it a dis- dissociation drug? And it's all semantics, but it was given as a buddy drug to bring a soldier home who was shot or injured or wounded. And you could bring them home knowing that you didn't need oxygen. Then such a, it was such a good anesthetic, it became the standard of care for children because children not breathing is a big deal, right? Uh, everybody, but especially children. And so it was used a lot in, in, in pediatric anesthesia. And then the rest of the world took note of ketamine. And that's why today it's, it has a special designation with the World Health Organization because in fact, it is the most used anesthetic in the world, just not in the United States. And the reason why, because you can perform a surgery with ketamine 
without the use of oxygen, with minimal use, with minimal necessity of monitoring hemodynamics. Of course, you still need to do that, but all the other sedatives that we use in anesthesia and operations and things like that just plummet your physiology, so to speak. Where ketamine, and there's a couple others like it, but especially ketamine, is safe. And then back, I'm glad you asked the question back, why was it invented so long ago, yet now we're just finding out 50 years later. And part of that goes back to the LSD days with Timothy Leary and all that, tune it, tune it, take the drug, tune in, tune out, get out. And the government shut down all psychedelic research at that time. And I mean, everything. And basically that's a long history and a separate discussion in itself, but that shut down any research related to psychedelic drugs, including ketamine for the use of mental disorders. We and knew that was in the nineties, right? The late nineties. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so we knew in the seventies though, there's papers that are that show a hundred percent it was a good antidepressant back in the 70s and it's a neat story it's a couple papers that show that but anyway going fast forwarding to the 90s it was first shown to be able to abate anorexia you remember like like now the big thing is like suicide and depression back in the 90s it was anorexia and bulimia so some uk researchers first showed that and was really effective for that and that took everybody by surprise. And that's when the John Crystal and some of these other researchers took it and started using it for depression. And to their surprise, to everybody's surprise, they found even as little as one treatment could, could abate suicidality. And then the NIH did a big study on it. And then the, the, the researchers just rolled into hundreds of peer reviewed articles and research from that and and that's where we are today with with the ketamine and, and why it's why now why why it's now and not back then this podcast is sponsored by indeed the hiring platform where you can attract interview and hire all in one place and honestly it's not just a tagline i have witnessed how robust and super easy it is to use because two of my children now have used Indeed as their hiring platform of choice. Cole had a phone interview the very same day he posted his resume. It moves that quickly. Indeed has streamlined hiring with powerful tools that find you matched candidates. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data US. And candidates you invite to apply are three times more likely to apply to your job than candidates who only see it in search, according to US Indeed Data. Instant Match makes it so simple for employers and candidates alike. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a job post, you get a short list of qualified candidates whose resume on Indeed matches your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Join over 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash wholeview. Offer good for a limited time. 
Claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com slash whole view. Just go to indeed.com slash whole view and support the show by saying you heard about it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash whole view. Terms and conditions may apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yeah, I had absolutely no idea that it was used medically on humans at all, let alone children. Ah, so, wow. I, and I consider myself a pretty educated person as it relates to these things. So I'm sure it's going to be a surprise for a lot of listeners as well that one of the things you didn't mention that was in the book is that the World Health Organization lists ketamine as an essential medicine and is the yes. most used anesthetic in the world, which you did talk about. So when we're talking about places like NIH and WHO and all these big government entities thinking about this as a medical solution, it completely changes my perception of the application that this could be used, which is understandably as someone who was in anesthesiology where your mindset came from. And I think what's interesting is your perspective of trying to solve suicidality, which will get to, but I think looking at this as an immediate solution for me as the mother of a child who has been hospitalized for attempted suicide and seeing what that looks like in the hospital and how as a parent, as the child, as medical providers, everybody is scared. Everybody is nervous. Like it is, there is not an answer right now for how to solve that problem. And you talk in your book about how anti-depression medication for people who aren't familiar with this situation, because I wasn't until I was the parent of a child going through this, there isn't a pill or a shot or something that helps the person re-regulate to be able to make logical um, decisions or to be in a mental state to make like logical choices, right? We talk all the time about maladaptive behaviors. If you go into a trauma state, if you have PTSD, like you're not thinking like yourself. And having a tool to help someone immediately re-regulate really would change the entire approach to the situation. And so I think you did an excellent job of being able to paint that picture. I had 24 bookmarks and I really did like sit down and read the book in one sitting. So, and I know for me, because I have a child in this situation, but also we lost a brother to an overdose of heroin who was trying to self-treat with his own mental health disorders. Mm -hmm. And he had been in recovery for years and one dose it can be an accidental overdose and that it's an it's a known issue and i don't think that he intentionally committed suicide but he did right and you talk in the book about how addiction is creating a lot of death in our country we have a homelessness problem in this country which you talk about many of these cases find drugs in the system Right. Like, because it would be impossible to be unhoused and not be depressed. It would be impossible to not have low self esteem and all of these things. So, I just, I really resonated with a lot of what you brought to try to educate people. It's been a lot of my own learning over the last few years. And I think talking about ketamine as 
being currently unaccessible because of the cost and it not being covered by insurance, mm-hmm. but that from a practical standpoint, because it doesn't require all these other things, because it is safe, it can be accessible if the medical community adopts it and insurance or other terms yeah. cover it. So I'm, wow. wondering if you, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about like some of that, but also specifically ketamine as a suicide prevention measure, right? So some of these things that I was like, yes, as I was reading, maybe you could talk a little bit about some of those statistics and some of the things that really brought you to see that perspective of ketamine as a solution. Sure. The, yeah. Thanks for sharing about that with your brother. And so I think it's important to highlight that in 2022, we lost 109,000 people to mostly fentanyl overdoses. It's a huge number. It's never been that high. And it's, it's and it keeps yeah. increasing every year. It's not getting yeah. any better. Well, yeah. It's, 2022 is 50,000 documented suicides basically and 109,000 overdoses. So yeah, we got, there's a lot of work to do. So back to the question of how I, the, the, the whole ketamine and suicide connection for sure. Gavin De Becker and I, he pushed me in many ways and that's what he's, you have to understand about Gavin. He's, he, he runs a very high level company and he runs, he's a, a CEO who, you know, doesn't, he's one like an Elon Musk or somebody like that. They don't take no, but it's just like, nope, you can get it done and you can get it done by this date kind of thing. And so he pushed me in ways in, in beneficial ways. And so that led me to see, see Castle. He's the former head of the National Institutes of Mental Health. And he agreed to, to an interview graciously. And cause I'd read his book and he had another book coming out and he said that ketamine was the most important discovery in 50 years. And some of his visions for using ketamine was to make it at least an option in the standard of care of treating depression and suicidality, not just that, but in the emergency departments, he said, imagine if you could take person who's suicidal ideations, give them ketamine and theoretically be able to send them home with an, uh, uh, an appointment with the psychologist or psychiatrist and get them the therapy they need and not have to institutionalize them, especially a child. He says that is possible. And his vision by 2025 was that emergency departments would make ketamine at least a consideration for standard of care or in the decision tree. I want to I want to pause and tease that point out a little bit because it hadn't occurred to me until again I was you know close with someone who was going through this that part of what causes suicidality is PTSD. For most people, it might be identified as depression, but most people have some sort of unresolved trauma of some kind, which you talk about in the book. Big big T, sure. little T. We've had previous shows on this. We could put it in the show notes to dive more into that. But I bring that up because PTSD is only exacerbated by being institutionalized. I think we who have not experienced it might think, oh, it's a helpful solution for people, right? They're going and they're getting help. They're getting care. But in fact, most people, at least that I have experience with, have additional PTSD 
from the experiences that they go through 100% yeah. in those institutions. So I think your point of saying, like, if it could be a standard of care of I'm not feeling safe, I'm going to go to the emergency room. I'm going to get this medical treatment that will help me be safe until I can see a provider who can help me in other ways like that. We do not have right now there. there that solution does not exist. Nope. That's a, that's a hundred percent correct. And, and more than anything, the, it's about the kids too, because they, I mean, they don't have room for them. I mean, there's several articles that were, they, that they, they don't have room for these kids and they're stuck in unimaginable situations. Uh, and like you said, the PTSD is only exacerbated, not, they're not treating anything. Um, you know, and then they're, then they keep them in there for months for whatever reason. Until medicine, in my experience, in most of those cases, it's yeah. to get medicine normalized because it takes that long for the current treatments to kick into their systems and to see yep. if things are working. Yeah, like four to six weeks. Exactly. And, and so by being able to bridge that is, you know, is, is a really great thing or can be a great thing. That's so, yeah, that's a good Absolutely. point. That's a good perspective. I've seen it up close in my rotations and in the psychiatry wards, I, I did all that. And then now I'm seeing it, uh, from the many patients come to me and just goes, have you ever presented to an emergency department with this or let somebody know? Cause that's the most important thing. Nope. I don't want to be institutionalized and I'll never, I do not want to take that chance. So there's, I'd say there's a lot of people who never see an emergency department because of that fear. Yeah. And yeah. I'm sure you can totally relate to that. Yeah. yeah. I thought it was interesting in your book, some of the statistics that I pulled together. I know you gave the 109,50,000 numbers, but 21 million Americans experience major depression and a third of them have treatment resistant depression, which we can talk about as specifically studies showing that ketamine is effective with those people who where other treatments were not effective. And 70% of those depressed patients that have been studied responded to a single treatment of ketamine in a positive way to abate mm -hmm. symptoms, which, I mean, there aren't numbers like that for other depression medications, right? Like no. we in our family have gone through dozens trying to get, you know, the individual person on the right medication to feel better. And it takes months or years before someone does. So that's just unbelievable to me. And then you also talked about a 2022 study where 235 um, yes. suicidal patients from 14 to 84. Can you talk about like those infusions and yeah, yeah, what the results of that Laura, study were? So, so there's a great psychiatrist named Lori Calabrese. She is a dedicated woman and, and she showed, yeah, she took 240 patients, something like that, in a real world outpatient setting. So this is not an act, this is not like a Yale kind of study in her own private clinic with serial titrations of ketamine and abated their suicidal ideations in 70% of those individuals. That is unheard of until pretty much until now. And even more, none of, she lost none of them to suicide. So that for those who question the whole thing, you, you just have to take pause when you see those kind of numbers. And it's not to say, but you have, you also have to remember, so I'll put the caveat on that. You have to remember these people in these studies 
receive stellar therapy. The therapy they receive has so much more effect. And that's the thing you can see in any of these studies when they do like the NIH studies or the academic studies, that they're making sure these patients see therapists for way longer than you might, than the typical person will see. Because I have stories of like, oh, the psychiatrist spent five minutes with me and gave me this prescription. The psychologist just, oh, 10 minutes is all I got. Now, to cure suicidality, and that's, and that highlights one of the problems we have. If we're going to, if we're going to tackle the problem of mental illness, we need, we need somehow to, to give these people the, the correct amount of therapy. And, and, and I've been involved in that and I have certificates. I like along with Dr. Zand, I do some therapy and stuff. It takes a solid hour to, to get anywhere, at least meaningful. Our sessions, five, that, yeah. our sessions that are effective are 90 minutes. It there takes us it yeah. takes us that long to get to well, one of the things that makes ketamine special, and we'll talk about how it actually works, is the neuroplasticity that it allows for in your brain. And I think for people Absolutely. who have ex for people who have experienced trauma or hardship or have created their own coping mechanisms for things in their life, their brain, I describe it as like the Grand Canyon, right? Like every time their brain goes down that path, it's creating Oh, uh, like, right? right? Like a pathway in their brain that's deeper and deeper. And it's that much harder to climb out than if it was just a creek in your backyard and being like, nope, I'm not going to take the creek today. I'm going to take this other path. Yeah. And I love the idea that what this medicine is doing is allowing, I'm assuming, these doctors to access that neuroplasticity that much quicker and easier, right? That someone isn't stuck in that maladaptive negative mindset and coping skill that they're insistent on that served them at one point, but no longer does, right? Protected them once, but now is causing them harm against themselves. And so we're looking at something that is literally able to lift them out of the Grand Canyon and set them on the edge and be like, okay, now talk to someone. Okay. So this analogy, you're nodding your head, listeners can't see. That. I love it. I know. Yeah. I liked the quote that was included from this doctor that you were talking about the study is that Ketamine does not just make the suicidal thoughts easier to bear, it erases them. And that was like a, a an awakening for me because what I what we've been working with for a really long time is easier to bear, right? Like we can't get to it's safe yet because we're still stuck in where we were, traumas and past and all that. So I also think that a lot of listeners could relate to uh, while the book is about depression and suicidality, it is not the only thing that it applies to. You talk about an adolescent girl who, I think she was 14, had leg pain, but because of the leg pain was experiencing depression and a whole bunch of other symptoms. But really, the root cause of her problem was a an extreme leg pain that no other medicine or yeah. yeah, that no other treatment was addressing. Can you talk about that case and what was seen from ketamine treatment? Sure. The, that's on the topic of like adolescent pediatric psychiatry and giving ketamine in that population, which is hard to do. It's very hard to get research projects signed off by the IRBs, institutional review boards, to be able to do those studies in kids. So most of the literature for kids comes from those kind of case reports of that 14-year-old you mentioned and also cancer studies. 
and burn studies. Burn, uh, ketamine is given a lot in burns. So that, that case, that, yeah, she was in and out of institutions, hospitals, and mostly because of this neuropathic pain. And it's known that ketamine affects the pathways for such pain. And there's several examples in the book about ketamine being able to, to at least abate for some period of time, very hard to treat neuropathic pain. And anybody who lives with neuropathic pain knows that it, there's almost nothing that touches it. You almost have to sedate yourself to, to ever do anything with it. But in the, in the case of this chase report with this young adolescent, it was something that worked not permanently, but it worked to the point that she could get serial ketamine infusions when she needed, and it got her out of hard times. Um, and being you know, able I, to do physical therapy, like abated the pain yeah, enough. Exactly. Yeah. She got physical therapy and that was part of the thing. And then I think it's important to point out it. So. I guess to put some note, this has also been talked about on a much larger scale. I listened to the podcast with Tim Ferriss about ketamine and he interviewed Dr. John Crystal, who's a plethora of information. Even Ferris admitted after six treatments, his neuropathic pain that he had been battling for years in his back got better for an entire six month, months after his series of infusions. Admittingly, which is, a, which is about how long the adolescent girl went before she came back to the hospital for additional. 100%. So I think, so there's several, and I could, I can name many more examples, but, but I think for, since so, so many people I'm sure follow Tim on this kind of stuff, it's like, Hey, it, even he got benefit from it. And it's not like he set it up. So, so there's, so yeah. For chronic pain, there's something there. And then you get into the pain issue, that's a lot. <laughs> so how exactly does it work? We've talked about yep. it creates neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was helpful for me to hear about the MRI studies that you talked about in the book. So can you talk a little bit about like how we know that it works and how we actually can see that it's working when we're looking at a functional MRI? Yeah, we can, yeah, we can tell just what areas of the brain lights up when it's on ketamine, at least remember, there's not been that many studies done on it. It's, we're talking like a handful of studies that's, that have looked at that, but we can see the specific areas in the parietal when the, and interestingly, they've done studies on the receptors and that goes in the whole semantics. Is it a psychedelic or dissociation drug? And the, the textbooks you'll read, oh, it's not a psychedelic, it's a dissociative anesthetic. And you talk to psychiatrists and, and others, and it's a psychedelic hands down. And there's even studies from those fMRI to go back to that and the receptors that show it touches the same places like psilocybin, MDMA, and ayahuasca even there. It all affects it a little differently, but it's a psychedelic. It dissolves time. It dissolves the ego, it, it gives you a different orientation above yourself that you're not capable of all the properties of a psychedelic. And so when you go into that, then we can go into more well-studied mechanisms of ketamine, which is like the increase in brain derived neurotrophic factor or mTOR, the mammalian target of rapamycin, those are increased. And other things are increased as well. 
and that's if you want to, and that's where the psychedelics and, and ketamine are fertilizers for the brain, and that's where that comes from, and and those are why your neuroplasticity increases and the ability to get out of that grand canyon of the default mode network come from so so anyway yeah on the on the fmri the summary there is that we can just see where it lights up it doesn't give us much more information than that but that correlates to the proteins and other physiologic factors that are modified and gives us a good explanation for how this might work but that goes into a an interesting point that I'm going to make, I'm doing a speak event later this month. Ketamine just doesn't treat the biological portion. Like you can't put ketamine into a pill and expect results. And it's a big part of medicine that I think is missing. The real treatment of a person involves the mind, body, and spirit. And we are missing that in so many facets just go into cardiology, Where, where's the mind, body, spirit approach into that? And when you add those kinds of things in, the results are incredible. And then I'll circle back that when we treat mental illness, depression, and suicidality, ketamine and other psychedelics give that, in a sense, that spiritual view you know, of that hierarchy and just show that, hey, you're just a little peon of energy in this whole universe, and there's a heck of a lot more than what we are when we are face-to-face -face with what we think the world is. You can't, you know, and that's what comes out of therapy. That's what comes out of, you know, your relations with other people. And I think that's, that's the cool thing about all this is we're actually able to do some of that. And I think if we could get more studies and more doctors on board like that, we would see a lot more effort being put into this approach. And in my experience, it gets, it's way more effective and you can change a lot more lives by doing that than just expecting a 10 minute psychiatric evaluation with a prescription of an antipsychotic at the end of it and check back in four weeks. So that's where I go. That's where I'm trying to go with this. This week's podcast is sponsored by Puri, the supplement brand I am loving. I honestly think that they might be putting some magic dust into everything because this is seriously the first brand that I've used that has not caused fish burps or skin and digestive irritation with taking their whey protein. I have been using Puri for my magnesium and omega-3 supplementation for months, and I switched originally because tests were showing that um, what I was using wasn't effective, but I've also added in their whey protein, which has historically not been possible for me. Because of their super high quality standards, I am somehow able to add in more protein to maintain my muscle mass, which we've recently talked on the show about how important that is as we age without inflammation or irritation. Their pasture-raised 
protein also has real bourbon vanilla and coconut sugar as the other ingredients. Like so clean, so awesome, and has been perfect for me to add to my smoothies. Um, Additional leucine and BCAAs are the added protein my body needs. So if you're interested, you can find all of their information on their website. They're incredibly transparent. They use third-party laboratory testing for over 200 different types of pesticides, heavy metals, and other unwanted substances. And they verify that the products contain the amount of active ingredients indicated on the label, which is also certified by the Clean Label Project. Ensuring that their products aren't contaminated with heavy metals, pesticides, toxins, or anything else undesirable. And best of all, they perform. My body is super sensitive, and historically, I would get fish oil burps or blemishes, and I have finally found a brand that I am able to take with no issues. I've been taking the Pure Omega 3 fish oil for months now and have never had a fish oil burp, which just blows my mind. I love their fresh, pure, and potent source of omega-3 to support my heart, brain, and eyes. Join me to put your health first with Puri. This is a supplement brand you can trust. Right now, Puri is offering my listeners this amazing deal, 20% off site-wide. Go to my special URL, puri.com slash wholeview, and use my code wholeview. This even applies to the already discounted subscriptions, so you'll get almost a third off of the price. Go to puri.com slash wholeview. Don't wait. Use promo code wholeview at puri.com slash wholeview. Yeah, no, I appreciate that so much because I think in addition to the mechanisms that you talked about, how I came to the wellness community was only about body, right? Not about mind and not about spirit, but just what you put in and on your body affects how you feel. And while that is a factual statement, it is not the only thing. And the reverse can also be true, right? Like how you feel can also affect your digestion about the things that you're eating and can give you additional food sensitivities, right? Like these things are not separate in our bodies. And I recently took a class for Harvard Business School where they talked about a study that had been done on the emotions that bring us the most positive health and um, lead to longest lasting lives, right? Like lowest mortality, right? Feelings that people have in their life. And it was assumed that these feelings would be happy or joy, but what actually was the resulting emotion was awe. And so when I think about spirituality, I think about the word awe. I think about, like you said, feeling the weight of looking up at the stars and realizing that I'm a grain of sand in the universe. And at the same time, the impact that I can have on the world if I choose to apply myself and the values and the um, passions that I have, whether it be sustainability and climate or whether it be helping others or what it might have, my impact then becomes magnified. And that feeling for me produces awe. For others, it might be religious experience or it might be a variety of things, whether it be universal with astrology or whatever it might be, just this feeling of awe is the one that the study showed created the lowest rate of mortality through long life. And 
So when I hear you say it has to involve mind, body, spirit, I'm like, all of the science and all of the things that we're doing right now are all pointing to this. And we have to stop thinking about mental health as being separate from physical health because the brain is part of our body and it is affecting so many other things with our vagus nerve and PTSD and all of these mm -hmm. kinds of things. And it's also affecting, for example, our digestion. I say to people all the time, like, well, when you're nervous or anxious, you get a stomach ache. And they're like, yeah, I'm like, there you go. Right, Your brain is affecting your, your physical digestion. And I think for a lot of people, that's hard. And I think that's why we also have, for so many years, we have not had quality mental health care or practitioners. The majority of people Having gone through the state system, like, and how difficult it was to get a good therapist for a child in the foster care system, I, I can't even tell you because oh. everyone who works for the state is that was the last, like, the last job opportunity that they wanted, right? It's the person who, like, barely passed college, I'm guessing. And that's an assumption and not very nice for the people who are doing it altruistically and are taking right, low pay right. because yeah, they want to help people. But our experience was that these individuals did not have the quality of care that you were talking about in terms of this high quality of therapy that the individuals have in studies. And the huge difference that it makes for somebody to have a therapist who understands validation or that needs are driven by lack of skill or traumas that people have had and that we can't just like demand certain behaviors of people. We have to go deep into the root of these things. And the idea that there could be a treatment that allows for easier access to that for a therapist is amazing. But like you said, that means that we need to also have more individuals who are of that quality care to be able to do that because we have a mental health crisis right now. You can't, there's a waiting list for every decent therapist in this country. There's not enough available. And people don't want to go into the health community anymore because you have to deal with insurance. The pay isn't as good. You're in school forever. And then it's just a nightmare. And people that I talk to who thought about doing that, who are younger, it's like, no, that's any, I have four teenagers. All of them have zero friends who want to go into that. And one of mine wanted to be a veterinarian. And now he's like, no, I don't want to deal with all of that. Like, it's a no thanks. And it's interesting to me because when I was a kid, that's all anybody wanted to do, right? It was I mean, like, that's the aspirational job of no, doing no. what you do to be a doctor. But I think the system has just created something where we have this, an increase in need and a decrease in people who want to do the work. And it creates this lack of quality care that is not helping people. Yep. That's, you know, are we going to get questions become, are we going to get robots to do this? I, I <laughs> not the, that may be the answer to some governments or whatever. And then the other thing is, like you said, there more and more people just, they don't want to put in the, the years of school it really takes. So you get, so you get a lot of mediocre care and that, and from say most people want to become I talk to kids, like he's saying, like, why don't you become a doctor? Like, just go through the whole thing. And, oh, I will never be able to pay off the loan. Well, that's a myth. And so most people just want to do nurse practitioner or nurse or physical as physician assistant, which it's great. But I think we need more people like what you grew up with, what I grew up with, who just, who are going to go through the whole thing. 
So we'll see. I don't know. It's, it's only going to get harder. And the one thing I'll say to that, at least we have many psychologists putting their thing and psychiatrists like Dr. Sam Zand, but his psychology is, it, it's rocket. It, it's really up there. It's not just, and then you have other people too. And so that what I'm trying to say is there's many resources online now that were not ever there before. And that can be the start of a journey or at least complete psychological therapy. And because you hear just even from our podcast, whoa, I need to tell my therapist, hey, we need to, maybe you need to do a treatment or somehow get my mind in and look at that mind, body, spirit. What the heck's going up in there? Why don't I see myself as just a speck of energy, but I can make a difference? You know, that, so there's, I don't know. There's a lot to it. And yeah, I'm, I don't know what the future holds, but hopefully my, hopefully this book makes a difference. And on the whole premise was, Hey, if it saves a life, it's all worth it. Absolutely. And I think beyond saving a life, some of the other applications that you talk about with chronic pain from migraines or fibromyalgia or neuropathic pain, as you gave an example of, I was also surprised to see autism spectrum disorder as being one yes. of the, I, I had no idea that people with yeah, ASD have a high likelihood of suicide. Can you talk a little bit about like some of these other applications? Yeah, the, uh, Aaron Orsini, he did an interview. I did an interview with him and put it in the book and it was last minute, but his personal story is that he was a pretty low functioning on the, on the autism spectrum disorder spectrum, so to speak. And he said, once he started using ketamine and as a, as a medication anyway, and other psychedelics, his ability to speak and the guy's got books out now, he's getting himself involved in research studies. His story is incredible. And I mean, might put a link to his work, but as far as and I dealt with some of that because I've been told I was, I was, I got, ex, I had to get extra time on tests and it was probably from being somewhere on the, the spectrum. And so, so I get it. And it's, I think it's going to be, once we get the science out and do some more studies, which there's more research right now going on to that, I think there's huge potential, um, for, for ketamine and psychedelics and to help that population. And, and I'm really looking forward to what's coming from that. I can't believe that I kept the secret for this long, but I am so excited to share that Beauty Counter has launched EWG Verified Clean Eau de Perfume. Let's just take a minute. Perfume that's clean, fragrance with full transparency and no quote unquote fragrance listed on the label for loopholes, just all of the sustainable, safer ingredients. This clean eau de perfume set is just one of 14 new sets launched this month at beautycounter.com slash Stacey Toth. And you can check out my other recommendations and highlights at realeverything.com slash October. And if you decide to make a purchase this month, I'm donating to RIP Medical Debt. Each holiday set sold equals $100 of debt eliminated. Last year, we were able to raise over $32,000 and I chose... I chose this in October because it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and while I educate on prevention all year long, helping survivors not worry about the stress of debt feels like a wonderful holiday gift our collective community can give. And if you choose to purchase, 
you can feel good knowing that you're supporting my small woman-owned business by choosing sustainable, fair trade, and skin-nourishing ingredients and products. Beauty Counter is raising up beauty. It is a little luxury that makes a positive impact on our health for all of our collective communities through legislative change and giving back, as well as for the earth through sustainable manufacturing practices. We're getting safer products into the hands of everyone, giving back to people in the planet as a certified B Corp. Go to beautycounter.com slash Toth, and just like any other website, you can shop around. Don't forget to check my special private deal just for you listeners. Go to realeverything.com slash October for more details. And when you shop at Beauty Counter, choose me, S-T-A-C-Y-T-O-T-H, so that I can send a thank you. I love the idea of bringing out the best in individuals, right? Not in the idea of, I don't want to fix my son's ASD. I want him to be able to apply himself Mm -hmm. and to have confidence and to be able to, to speak to the incredible like knowledge that his, his brain functions in a way that I am in awe of all the time. Right. And I'm just like, how I want him to be able to apply that and to be successful in life. And so I I love the idea that there is a potential application that could work for him in that way. And also I think about the social awkwardness and the not understanding that kind of stuff and just being able to let go of some of the anxieties and surroundings of that. But that because the book was about suicide, you talked about how those with ASD 66% of people experience suicidal thoughts. And I was like, oh my gosh, like that's heartbreaking for me because I know how, at least the community that I'm in, how much the parents love and want to support and help their children be themselves. And but the idea also that those caretakers become depressed and overwhelmed, it's really all about community support. But until we get there, we do need more tools to. Right help people feel better. Another one of the applications that you talked about that I thought was awesome because I have a brother who struggled with addiction was that ketamine is not an addictive drug. And so it has actually been used in people who are addicted to other drugs or alcohol as a means to release of addiction. And then You talked about a Johns Hopkins study that is doing clinical research on that. Can you share a little of that perspective? Because I think that could also yeah. Be there's two sides. There's two sides to the addiction thing. In reality, on the street, ketamine is a very addictive drug, and it's it's abused. And but realize that the ketamine, street ketamine, is taken in grams. Like when you look at dose per dose, as it would be given in a clinic. You're talking some milligrams versus grams, and it's usually snorted like cocaine, and it, and it can cause the bowel and bladder problems and cystitis and those kinds of things. In Asia, it's a big problem, and I have some DEA friends who told me that the the amount of ketamine they're seeing coming through from China now is has gone up considerably. So on the street, no, it's an it, it's a very abused and addictive drug. Now in a clinic setting. That's been studied and prove, proven pretty much that it's not. Dave Feifel out of the Kadima Clinics in San Diego, he's a neurologist and a psychiatrist. And he did a study of 6,000 um, people and he found that like six became addicted to it. So it's not zero, 
but when given in an appropriate setting and dose, and it, that's a true statement, it's a very low likelihood you're going to become addicted to it. And then on your, on the point, it's used to treat other addictions. The initial studies came out on alcohol in Russia. Celia Morgan's done a lot of this work in the UK and she's great showing that appropriate ketamine use with good therapy, by the way. And again, in these studies, these people are getting a superior level of therapy. Got to keep that in mind. It's important, but it's the ability for ketamine to, to treat addiction is really cool. It's a good thing. And then, and you can't talk about that without mentioning the effect of say another psychedelic called ibogaine, which is found in, in Gabon, or I guess in English, you would say Gabon, or I highly know it in French. The, they have a plant there and it's all in that region, but the research on that to be able to stop say heroin addiction is staggering. It's so, so anyway, the potential's there and we're not, there's so much more to be explored, but with 109 thousand overdoses, mostly from fentanyl, man, I, I hope we do something about this because you just hear these kids losing their lives to fentanyl and, and these other laced drugs. And that's the other thing. Street ketamine is often laced with fentanyl. So it's a different deal. It's just a different animal, but yeah, my, my heart goes out to those people and gosh, we need something better. And that's not including all of the overdoses and addictions that don't lead to death, right? Like how there's Oh, I yeah. can't even imagine what those staggering numbers are. 4,000 uses of Narcan in, in a six-month period in San Francisco alone. That's yeah. just San Francisco. We're not talking like Oakland. We're, not, we're just talking the yeah. streets of San Francisco, 4,000 activations documented of Narcan. Wow. Yeah. As the parent of teenagers um, with a family history of addiction. My husband mm -hmm. and I have talked about having Narcan in our in my purse or wherever it is, just because I would like to hope that I never need to use it, but better safe than sorry. Yeah. Like, kind I, of, I hope it's there. Gosh, I know. Seen, seen some people like pack their kids' camps with Narcan, or at least, I don't know, you hear of these things and it just, yeah. usually I think it's just clickbait, but yeah, are we, is that where we're at? Really? I, hope, I, I hope, hope not. At the same time, having lost someone whose life right. would have been saved by it, it's hard not to think, well, it right. doesn't hurt to have it. So from my own, I always include my own personal benefit. It is my podcast. As someone who has had COVID four times and oh. I've had my, my first case, it was long COVID for quite a while, a lot of mm -hmm. brain fog. I was interested in how you wrote into the book about how COVID-19 infections have a similar low BDNF, which is, well, I'll let you explain what it is and then yeah. how ketamine actually helps some of those patients. Well, there was a study on that. We can't say positively it, it does help. There was a, uh, I think Matthew Sims did a, in a he, was, he proposed a study for that to give ketamine sedation to COVID patients who were on ventilators. And it, with the knowledge that ketamine is actually helps abate brain neuroinflammation, because that's what COVID 
COVID's first a viral infection, but then it's devastating effects is the inflammatory cascade of which that it's, it's a brain infection. When you lose sense of smell, that's the brain. That's not the nose. That's the brain. That's the first cranial nerve. So you have to take pause when you hear that kind of stuff. So anything you could do to decrease brain inflammation might be something to consider. So does that justify the use of the, yeah, I got brain inflammation. Should I do ketamine infusions? I don't think we're there yet. I think it should be taken into consideration. I, I think at least we know that giving ketamine might help, might do nothing, but it sounds like it's not going to hurt. And then you pile all that on like the long COVID. I'm sorry, that, that comes with its own psychological suitcase, right? You can't do what you used to be able to do and. And uh, yeah, my, yeah, I'm a big cyclist and tennis player. And then, yeah, my athletic abilities went down. It affected my heart, something, whatever. It took me a while to get over it, but no, it's a real thing. And so anyway, back to the long COVID and, and that, I think there's a lot of psychological things that come in with that might have an application, but again, I don't want to jump the gun. I think the potential's there and it should be, it should be a consideration at least in the because one thing's for sure, just treating it with a pill is not going to get you over it. it it's so much more complex. And, it, and, it, and again, it goes into the mind, body, spirit, and even more. Who knows? It might be something with your past traumas that <laughs> this pile on top of your brain, in addition to this, this inflammation of, your, of the mitochondria and all these energy producing things and causing brain inflammation that just all go together. I don't know. It's, that's how you think out of the box though, right? And, and I hope we'll see more, more considerations of that and how it applies. Time will tell, but like I said, it's, it's something, it's a great thing to think about. And hopefully just by us talking about it, somebody who's in that position to do these kind of research will take the, let's explore that. And that, that's the hope. That was the hope of bringing it up in the book. Oh, I appreciate that. I think it's a really good perspective to, to, I, I appreciate that you've caveated a lot of the things that we're talking about. I think there's a lot of people that take information or studies and run with it and make a lot of assumptions or say, mm -hmm. oh, well, it was shown in this one person. And so therefore it'll apply to everyone. And so I really appreciate the approach that you have in giving caveats about what we can or cannot assume or learn from some of these studies. And I think that also brings me to, I think, the biggest question that I would have if I were listening to the show, which you do talk about in your book, which is there are some patients who have an unpleasant experience or for whom ketamine is not an ideal medication. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think we've all heard about a friend of a friend or depending on who you are, someone who had a bad trip. And what we don't want is to medicate someone into being worse, right? So what? can we talk a little about that? Yeah, like the, so Dr. Fry, I have a section in there, Dr. Friedman's K, uh, ketamine infusions, and he gives this piece of paper to every one of his patients before they get it. So, so the point is they're well prepared. So the, the secret, one of the secrets to giving any infusion like this, uh, is preparation knowing that they're going to be safe, knowing that, um, 
you know, that they, once they get deep into that and, and it's true in some of these, in some of these infusions and experiences, people tell me like, yeah, I felt like I wasn't sure if I was coming back and that's not necessarily the K-hole. I think that's a different thing it probably approaches it, but, but the fact is that people get scared and you have to really assure them that they're going to be, this is a safe thing. And if you get there, just tell yourself you're safe and let it go. And then, and as far as, and then on the note of like bad experiences, I'm not sure, is there a bad experience? These, these infusions are not all purple, just the rosy Monet type images that flow through the mind. They can be very beautiful. I get the, get these from patients too, but the, but sometimes people's traumas are just that they're terrifying, it, no matter which way you look at them. And I think any psychedelic and treatment just allows you to look at those traumas in a way that you could never look at them or deal with them and, and say, we'll call a normal state of mind, like you and I are talking in. And I always tell people what occurs during a ketamine treatment is probably what was supposed to happen. And that's useful for people because then they get, all right, I was a little scared. The traumas came back and again, but it was probably what was supposed to happen. And then I've seen people with very bad experiences, the first one or second one, and then they keep going and it gets better and better. And, and that's the same thing that happens in therapy. Exactly. Almost the same progression. People are just, they're terrified to talk about it. And then, you know, you just bring them closer and keep building on that on, and that's, those are the exact things that change the brain chemistry, the brain derived neurotropic factors and other proteins to, to allow your neuroplasticity to, to shape in such a way that you're going to, you're going to do better with this. So to learn that you can trust and that you're safe and all of those mm -hmm. things. Yeah. And I think some of the examples you gave in the book is I think there was a, an example of someone who was coming off of a drug that they were addicted to and then was using ketamine as a solution. And that combo was not effective. Right. And I think that's important. To, to highlight as well, like if, if you're going through a mania or a withdrawal, it's, it's probably not the time to, to, to just go to ketamine treatments, probably not. And that's my, that that's my experience. And, and because there are many clinics that you just present yourself, please give me ketamine. Boom. It's done. You, you get it. Many nurses and nurse anesthetist and things like that. I've seen open up clinics and they'll just take anybody. And, and that highlights the point. That's why I work with a psychiatrist who I said before, Dr. Sam Zan and some others, but he's been integral in this, in that the combination of the therapy is really what pays off for people. And so just trying academy treatment in any situation, especially addiction, Anyways, I think has to be carefully weighed. And that's what I have to say about that. And I hope that with more recognition and understanding the current studies that are underway, the research that's surfacing about the possibilities of this as a solution is that more will be learned and can be applied mm -hmm. from a perspective of how to help and optimize the situation 
for individuals um, to avoid those negative outcomes Mm -hmm. or the potential unpleasant experience. So I think that is a great way to wrap. I always like to leave listeners with something positive or actionable that they can take to be of service to work on either themselves or others. And one of the things that I was thinking that you can maybe share are some of the warning signs that we can all be aware of to support and prevent suicide. Because we can't bribe ketamine to people, but we can, especially those of us who, I will say, for example, myself, I've mentioned I'm the mom of teens. My friends, my neighbors, they know that I am a treatment foster parent, that I've gone through a lot of training and certification to be able to support needs. And I have become a go-to person for other teenagers who are self-harming to come and talk to them about that they're safe and therapy is a great option and, and all of these things. And I think to myself, what would happen to these children if they didn't have a safe outcome? What would happen if my friends, my family didn't know some of the warning signs because I don't talk about if they didn't have a friend who was talking about it. 50% have no warning signs. Mm -hmm. 50. That's a lot. Wow. 50% of the people who commit suicide have zero warning. That's a, it's a big number. So they're already behind the, we're already behind the eight ball in there. The good news is though, something I'm actually preparing for the speak event talk is like eight out of 10 are ambivalent, like means they're going to let you know somehow. And the other thing is that nine out of 10 people, seven days before they plan to do it, give you clues. So for those 50% who do let us know, there's some hope in there that if you pay attention and, and that goes back to like, I don't know, having dinner at the table, it's my French culture. It's like, I, even kids nowadays in France, they all eat at the table. They know what it means. But what's the power of that? That's where discussions take place. That's where you get to know people. The reason you walk your kid to the bus stop is not because you want to have a discussion with them every day. It's because of that one time out of 50 trips that they're going to tell you something that you learn something about who they are. So anyway, just, you know, it gets into this. There's got to be more connected and, and find ways. And I think those are how you can look at the signs of, is your kid in trouble or not? I talk about the 18 school kids in 2020 in Las Vegas, who school-age children who took their lives. Man, those parent, if you're a parent of one of those kids, you're just like, how could have I seen what was coming? And if they could go back, wow, it, it touches me hard. And that's, it's one reason I wrote this book and man, that, that, that's a heavy subject. And my, my heart goes out to those people who wish they could go back and maybe change something and learn about the signs of suicide. And man, it's, I don't know what to say. Yeah, it's hard. I want to share some of the specific, uh, warning signs that you do include specifically for a parent of a child that might be thinking about it. But I also think that these are important from the perspective of if you have a friend who, you know, ever since COVID has just seemed more and mm. more depressed or any of those things, like I, I want. You got to bring up. Yourself. Yeah, we've got to be open about it. And I never would have before being it's been four, almost five years now that we've been 
trained and certified and learning about all these things, I never would have before thought that it was okay just to ask someone, are you feeling suicidal? And like, that feels uncomfortable to say, but it is so validating to the person to be seen to for someone to care enough to ask. And you will know immediately from their face and their wow. response how they're feeling, right? So some of the warning signs that you list in the book are an increase in irritability, withdrawal from activities, a lack of engagement in activities, especially with friends, problems with concentration, changes in eating and sleeping patterns, addiction to video games or any substances, giving away possessions or things that they seemingly cared about at one point, making out a will or joking about suicide, sending despairing texts or posts online about suicide, showing signs of major depression or engaging in risky behaviors. And I would say if any of these resonate with someone, don't feel like you need to be the expert either. It's okay to ask or say to someone, hey, I noticed and notice the thing, right? Like be open about whatever it is. Like, hey, I noticed that you've been withdrawing and, and less interested in things that you used to care about. Yeah. If mm. you're not comfortable sharing that with me, would you know you be open to talking to a professional? You yeah. can choose who it is. Go to psychology oh. today, put in your zip code and choose someone. But I think that we have to just start being open. Sorry, go ahead. So there's a technique to being open, though. And Mark Goulson, he's a very good child psychiatrist who a lot of people in Los Angeles and leads, whatever, Hollywood, that he sees a lot of those kids. And he's very hard to get into. But one thing he said that I'll never forget is talking to your kids or even other people about like mental health just as a discussion is like nails on a chalkboard. But when you bring up these, every, all these discussions we just talked about, we, we were discussing and you do it with an activity during a walk while you're playing tennis with them or ping pong or, or whatever, it, that is the difference between getting through, especially to an adolescent or not. So he said, you can make it like nails on a chalkboard or you can do it with an activity. And I think that's a great thing to, to end with, with people to hopefully wrap their head around if you're dealing with this. Do it during an activity. And I've had several people come back and tell me, yep, that's, that was the secret for me getting through to my loved one. That's a, it's a great point. I found that driving in the car is the mm -hmm. magic for my kids. Go. It's the lack of eye contact. It's the, like, it's the ability for them to, to be more open. And as the parent of many teenagers, Letting them choose the music also tells me a lot about their mood or how they're feeling based on the music and the lyrics that they're listening to. So that's my little trick for my kids, although they know. So I tell them all the time, like, let's go. You want to go with me for a ride? Let's go run an errand. And then <laughs> you choose the music. They know what's coming. So listeners, I want to thank you so much for tuning in today. If you'd like to keep in touch with Dr. Jonathan Edwards, you can go to jonathanedwardsmd.com and his book, The Revolutionary Ketamine, The Safe Drug That Effectively Treats Depression and Prevents Suicide, is available now any, anywhere people can find. I know it's on Amazon. We put a link in the show notes, but where else would people be able to find the book? 
Uh, it's on Skyhorse Publishing and Simon and Schuster. Okay. Yeah. And I'm sure people could request it from their local book scholar if it's not there yeah. already. Okay. And then you mentioned also that you're going to be doing a speak event in New York on October 18th. So if anyone's local, they can check that yeah, out no. or see it later. Correct. Very, Very yeah. exciting. Wonderful. Yes. And listeners, we put a list of resources in the show notes for you at realeverything.com. And you can head to patreon.com slash the whole view to get all of our show notes delivered to your inbox ad free, which is a really great way to support the show that we create and produce ourselves. And of course, if you enjoyed the show, could you leave a review saying so? It costs you nothing yeah. but 30 seconds of your time and makes a huge difference in my being able to continue to do this work. So don't forget to follow, subscribe in whatever podcast app that you're using. And as always, we appreciate your willingness to be open to growth through your own personal changes. No one is perfect, but in listening, learning, and unlearning, we can choose to become better versions of ourselves for ourselves. Thank you, Dr. Edwards, so much for joining us. That was a great talk. Thank you, Stacey. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.